Let's begin with prayer this morning. Father, over the next uh, few weeks we are scheduled to consider some issues and topics that at times generate more heat than light. We need light, and I pray that your Holy Spirit will be present with us, that we may understand our own role in Earth's last day, last days, and these last days of Earth's history, and also how we should relate to those who believe differently than we do. Give us insights and give us the presence of your Spirit. We pray in your name. Amen. Sleepy said I should introduce myself. Um, the name is there on the screen. I, uh, for a number of years, uh, served the General Conference of the World Church as the director of the Global Center for Adventist Muslim Relations. It was originally established in 1989 as the Center for, the, uh, Center for Islamic Studies at Newbold College in England. And in 1995, I was asked to take over the, the center from Borgeschantz, Dr. Borgeschantz. And uh, we renamed this center as the Global Center for Adventist Muslim Relations. Just briefly, um, Judy and I had spent, um, what, around 16 years living in various countries where either there was a majority Muslim population or a significant Muslim population. And uh, so based on that experience, some of the things that we were able to to work with through God's guidance and strength through those years were the reasons I was asked to take over the Center for Muslim Relations for the World Church. So since 95 until my retirement in 2010, that was our responsibilities. So it's it's been a subject, I suppose, that we have uh, been concerned with most of my working life since we landed in the Middle East in 1966. So with that brief introduction, um, we'll move right into the material. We're scheduled to spend four Sabbaths. Um, I don't know how I'm going to get through all the, we are going to get through all the material that uh, I would like to, but we'll just move as we can. And I do appreciate interaction, so uh, ideas and, uh, you know, uh, Violent, uh, just just no violent reactions. Okay, just uh, but uh, reactions to to what we're discussing. There are two handouts here. Some of you received those by email as well. Um, the one handout I won't refer to at all today, except just simply to say the one titled "I Don't Know Jesus." Perhaps expresses where I am in my thinking uh, today, as well as anyone as any I have read. It's not my writing. It's uh, Carl Madaris, who is a, has done quite a bit of writing in the area of relating with Muslims in recent years. Uh, the other handout, which uh, is the PowerPoint presentation that, you, that we will look at today, is kind of in three sections. Um, I want to look at some general ideas about mission, uh, which is the title, Mission as Cargo, Mission as Communication, or as Transformation. What are we really about? Uh, this is foundational, I feel, to our understanding of how we should relate to the Muslim world, and not only to the Muslim world, to other faith traditions as well. Uh, then there's a second part, uh, which we're going to look at some of the principles, therefore, out of this basic discussion. Um, uh, we want to look at uh, a kingdom focus in mission versus a church focus in mission. And we'll be talking about that. And then the last section, which we may not get to today, but uh, you will have it uh, in the handout as a reference, and that is the question of who is a law. And I put it right up front because it invariably comes up in any discussion. Uh, that we have, is Allah the same God and how we should relate to that. Like I say, we may not get to that. If we don't, we'll spend a few moments on it next week, but uh, you do have some material there that you can look through.
before we actually get into the uh, uh, material itself, this I feel is a good introduction, and it, it, I, I inserted this um, after I had worked on the main presentation after the discussion last week. And those of you that were here last week, we got a, I would say, a good overview of, of Hinduism, a certain aspect of Hinduism. And I had known about this quotation, and I kept thinking about it during the discussion last week, and I said, I must, I must include this. The religious genius of India is the richest in the world. The forms that it has taken have often been the most extravagant, sometimes degrading and cruel, and we got an exposure to that last week. These forms are falling away, or will fall away, but the spirit persists and will be poured through other forms. As that genius pours itself through Christian molds, it will enrich the collective expression of Christianity. Rather interesting uh, sentence. Uh, can we be humble enough to realize that we might learn something from other faith traditions is embodied in that, that sentence. As it pours itself through Christian molds, it will enrich the collective expression of Christianity. But in order to do that, the Indian must remain Indian. He must stand in the stream of India's culture and life and let the force of that stream go through his soul so that the expression of his Christianity will be essentially Eastern and not Western. This does not mean that Indian Christianity will be denied and what is best in Western thought and life will be denied what is best in Western thought and life. For when firmly planted on its own soil, it can then lift its antenna to the heavens and catch the voices of the world. But... It must be particular. It must be particular before it can be universal. Only thus will it be creative, a voice and not an echo. That last phrase is significant because in our mission work around the world as Seventh-day Adventists, too often the local voice is not a voice, it is an echo. It is not a creative and internal voice. It is simply an echo of what has been handed to it too often. Um, this, 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 is, this was written in 1925, by the way, by E. Stanley Jones on his, in his book, The Christ of the Indian Road. Um, in other words, we may even find in Hinduism, as depraved as some things are in that faith tradition, we may find some things there that can enrich our own tradition. You see. And that Christianity, rather than coming in and importing something that India becomes an echo to by the Indian being grounded in his culture and then looking at the gospel message can become a voice rather than just an echo. That summarizes, I suppose, a lot of, of what I would like to emphasize this morning and, 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 and actually through the next few weeks. It influences basically my entire uh, approach in, to the Islamic world as well. And you have a couple other references there too. But I, I, I thought we needed that as a counterpoint sort of to, to the message of last week. You see, it's too often we... Uh, we, we talk about the co we've been talking about the cosmic conflict, and we sort of at times the default mechanism, the default position or default thinking is uh, that we have the Adventists and we have the the heathen over here, or the other. Let's just say the other, but often we in the past have classified them as as uh, heathen. And we draw the line of the great controversy like this. And the line of the great controversy, the cosmic conflict, is being between the church and everyone else. And it, 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 it feeds into this mentality of we're going to take the gospel to the heathen. 
But I learned very quickly that you don't call a Muslim a heathen. A Muslim is a believer in the Creator God. So I have come to realize that the cosmic conflict line may go something like this. It goes through the church and it goes through other faith traditions equally. With that as kind of background, let's move into our discussion. So here we are. Do you believe in change? <laughs> I'm a believer. Uh, we we commiserated a little bit this morning. I think the actual date was August 7, three days later. I actually took my pilot's license checkout ride on August 4. And we flew out of the States in, on August 7, I believe it was, in 1966. Regardless, here we are. This is in Seattle. We're getting on the plane. We flew to uh, England and then to East Africa, did a field project in East Africa, and then landed in Beirut later that year. You notice we are loaded. We, have, we are prepared for mission. Hmm? We look back on this and say how unprepared, how green. And I was 23 years old. We were 23 years old. Well, I had my tape recorder, I had my jacket, my, my tie, I mean, that's most important. <laughs> Coat and tie, Judy dressed in her best, even a corsage. I uh, don't quite know what she has in her right hand, but it's a bag, two bags, I think. We left the States understanding, with our limited understanding, with a certain understanding of mission that the church had handed to us. And I've described it as mission as cargo. As the missionary, we take our cargo. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not demeaning the scripture. We're talking about attitudes of how we have related to mission. I had a series of Bible studies that I had developed through the help of a number of others. I didn't like the little card with the, what was it? it was about 28 uh, little cards. So, well, we, I forgot what we used to call them. It was the ones that were common. Uh, I didn't like those. Those were, uh, just didn't have enough. I had always heard this phrase, that we need to preach the truth as it is in Jesus. And I looked through Bible study series, I listened to evangelistic series, and I would hear people, uh, evangelists, say, we preach the truth as it is in Jesus, and they would cite one text about what Jesus said on the subject, and then go on preach the doctrine uh, without Jesus. And so I had worked very hard to try and prepare a series of lessons that I was comfortable with that seemed to centralize the gospel about Jesus, who God is, and so forth. I didn't have the understanding of the cosmic conflict uh, that I do now, but at least I was trying. But I soon found out that carrying that series of lessons that I had crafted from my North American understanding did not fit very well over there. But that was mission. We take what we have here, we transport it as if it is a package, and we put it over there. The building looks the same. The hymns are the same. I have gone into a church in in northeast Thailand. This isn't Islam, but it's illustrative of our mission. Uh, In northeast Thailand, in uh, Ubon, uh, Rajasthani, I at I went into the Seventh-day Adventist church a number of years ago. And uh, as I walked into the church, I looked at the outside. And I said, this building looks exactly like uh, what I went to church in when I was a little boy at home. And uh, I went inside. There were pews. 
about seating about 300 people. They were all empty. There were about 25 Thai people sitting over here on the right side, and 25 of us Adra people doubled the congregation that day. I looked around the, the, the building inside. I could identify nothing Thai in that, inside of that building. Even the, even the flowers in front of the pulpit were artificially imported. They weren't Thai orchids. Um, there was a Hammond organ and a piano. I picked up the hymnal and I thought, well, there must be some Thai hymns and tunes in the back of the hymnal. I found none. I leafed through that entire hymnal. I wasn't listening to the service. I leafed through that entire hymnal. I found no Thai tunes. I found uh, a, folk, uh, a German folk melody. Can you imagine a German folk melody in Thai? A Welsh folk tune. Hmm. In Thai? You know, and it's just an illustration of this cargo mentality. We, we simply transported how to do church and put it over there and said, here's how you do church. And then wondered why only 25 Thai people after, after 50 years of mission were huddled over here in the corner of a church that could seat 300 people that looked very American. You see, And until the church becomes Thai, it will never reach the Thai people. And you can multiply that lesson around the world. So that's been the modus operandi, so to speak, of Adventist mission, Christian mission, and Adventist mission for many years. That's how we went out. We didn't know much better, but we had some inklings that there must be a better way. I, I keep uh, uh, using the illustration. I, my father was a, a logger in the Northwest, and during the, the summer breaks, I would work with him in the, in the woods. And uh, I soon learned that my physical build was too slight to work in the woods and that I'd better get an education. Um, uh, the end of uh, carrying around a chainsaw all day, I suffer from back problems today. But uh, my dad would say if equipment broke down, he would say, well, we can fix this thing in a couple of different ways. We can get, get a better hammer, a bigger hammer, or we can get a better wrench. And too often we have simply used a bigger hammer instead of finding a better wrench. And so when we landed out in Libya, that picture we were headed actually on our under call to Libya, North Africa, uh, that mentality, is there a better way? We don't seem to be making much of a dent in the Muslim world. Is there a better way? Uh, has been a question that has, has driven me uh, through our entire experience. But we began to learn. And we were on uh, quite a steep learning curve, I must admit. Um, we also were helped by mission thinkers, other mission thinkers, as we would read about uh, mission thinking. And we began to uh, realize that mission wasn't just taking cargo from here to there. Mission was also communication. So this was an improvement. Because with this model... We have the sender's culture, and we, have, we, we study about our own culture, and then we study about the other culture, and we, we realize that communication across cultures has certain challenges. And, and, and so we try to adapt our way of expressing the message to that particular culture. Uh, to the receiver's culture. And, and, and then we even try to get some feedback. Uh, to see if we're actually getting the message across. So this is definitely an improvement, but it also has its drawbacks because essentially in this model, the sender is still in total control. Yes, they receive, we receive feedback, but who's really in charge here? It's still the sender in charge, which has been a useful model. It's certainly been an improvement over the cargo model, um, but I would say the church today is basically still functioning 
with this model, primarily. There are certain problems to this model. Um, when you start communicating cross-culturally, um, one of the classic examples that's given in Arabic language is the difference between the word for heart, one's heart, and the word for dog. Uh, Nabil can help us with this. But uh, they're very close together, and you just have to get a little pronunciation difference, of course, in context. But uh, it's very easy to say, uh, I love you with all my dog, which is probably the worst insult uh, in the Arab world uh, if you don't pronounce it correctly. So communication across cultures has its challenges. Uh, what, Judy actually came across this, and I shared it, and I said, oh, I need to include this in this, in this presentation. A new fuel tanker arrives in the, on site in Qatar, and the newly appointed American manager, he tells the Indian supervisor to ensure that the new tanker is clearly labeled diesel fuel in Arabic and no smoking in Arabic. So let's see what resulted. both spelling errors as well as the whole message being a problem. So the communication model has its challenges also. Apparently he didn't wait for the feedback, you see. Um, but uh, I'd like to propose then a model which I think is where we need to move to, where some of us have come to, but are challenged in sharing this model with uh, the larger, larger uh, mission effort of the church. And that is mission as transformation. Here we have um, a entirely, a really a paradigm shift of thinking. Because here we are saying that there are several elements to mission. It's not just me bringing cargo. It's not just me communicating a message and getting feedback to make sure I'm commuting, communicating correctly and that the message is getting across correctly. Um, although that is very important. And even in this model, you have to go back to the communication model to, to, to make sure that what you are saying is being what is the picture in the mind of the receiver? Is it accurate? Is it actually what you're trying to what picture you're trying to communicate? Is that the picture that's coming up in the receiver's mind? And it means that we have to totally reevaluate how we how we uh, phrase what we're what we're communicating, how we how we couch it, how we package it, how we how we uh, illustrate it. Uh, you, 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 you learn very quickly that jokes don't translate across cultures very well. Uh, and, uh, but, but this model uh, needs all of that and more. It begins really with God's story. God's story feeds into the community's story. And the community here is referencing the, the, the people we are approaching. In our discussion here, the community story would be the Muslim story. God has been there before I got there. When we took off from Seattle in that picture, the North American continent didn't shift one millimeter, nor did the African continent shift when we landed. We did not take God to Africa. The missionary did not take God to Africa. Example, you can go to, um, to West Africa is a good example. You can go to the country of Ghana among the Akans people. When the first missionaries arrived, they were Catholic, and uh, they land in Ghana, and they start teaching the people, and they say, we need to come together and worship and pray on Sunday. Well, the local people are very gracious and they appreciate what the missionary brings to them in other ways. And so they say, okay, 
we'll, uh, we'll come together on Sunday. And so if you ask a person from that part of the world what the local people know about Sunday, what the day is, they will tell you Sunday is white man's day. But they will tell you also that we know what God's day is. Because the name for Saturday, Seventh Day, is, and uh, anyone from Ghana, West Africa? So, huh? Memenda uh, Day. Yeah. But Memenda Day is, is, I may not be pronouncing it exactly right, is close to the name for Saturday. What does it mean? It means the day of the eternal God. The day of God Almighty. So the local people say, well, we know what God's day is. It's, it's Saturday. It's, it's the seventh day. But Sunday, that's white man's day. Well, I mean, just think of, of the implications if, if those first missionaries had been a Seventh-day Adventist. And if, we'd have simply sit da- if, if you would simply sit down and ask a few questions about the local situation, you see. God's story, how did that get there? God's story was there before the missionary story arrived, you see. So when I'm approaching a new faith tradition, such as Islam, my first question ought to be, is God's story here somewhere? Is there something in the history? Is there something in the forms? Is there something in the belief system? Is there there something in traditions and legends that reflects that God has been here before I got here. Too often, as the cargo model and even the communication model, we have walked in as if we knew the whole story. You see. And simply given our story, we call it God's story, but it's our story. Yeah. Did you happen to, um, for the person that discovered They happen to pro the tradition in uh, Ghana for this connection. I mean, it's wonderful. I totally agree with what you're saying. But did anyone happen to take that down to its roots? May have a broader story. Yeah, equally. I honestly don't know the origin except to surmise that somewhere it came from the Ethiopian. Because Even. Ethiopians have the same tradition. Sabbath observance is in the history in Ethiopia. Of course, you have the eunuch and the story in Acts. Um, and Ethiopia had an impact across, uh, across Africa. I taught a class at Andrews in January, and one of my students is a doctoral student uh, from, uh, he's from Ghana, yes. And he's doing research on certain forms, uh, a certain ceremony that's an annual ceremony of a sacrifice to find out if there's anything he could use in that ceremony. So another answer to your question is we haven't been good at asking those kinds of questions. Tragically, uh, I and I was very excited. This this student uh, now he's doing his doctoral study now, actually was was doing research on a particular form, which in the past we've considered just as a pagan form. But uh, to realize that maybe there's some elements there that we could use as what uh, Don Richardson in the book Peace Child causes calls redemptive analogies. <clears throat> so back to our diagram. Uh, any other comments on, on this at this point or questions? I was just wondering, if God's story is there, why do they need our story? Perceptions of God's story may not be complete. And if you put it into the context that we've been discussing in this class of the cosmic conflict, we get out of the numbers game into understanding what really is, and we're going to look at this next week a little more, uh, when we ask the question, who are we? And behind that question is the question, what is our role in end-time history? And, and what does God really want of his people in, in end-time? 
in terms of mission. And it, that's really where the answer to your question lies. Uh, what, what really are we about? Um, if it's simply adding numbers to a group, adding numbers to my group, of course, not the other group, but my group, uh, we run into all kinds of difficult questions as to what, I mean, your question would then be very valid. But if, the perce- if God's story involves who God is and how he is involved in the cosmic conflict, uh, how he is going to win the cosmic conflict, if that's the critical issue, then it is important that we share stories and come out with a new story so that we understand those issues. It's not a matter of simply taking 28 fundamental beliefs as cargo and planting them over here, you see. Actually, when you look at it like that, the main thing that uh, the Western missionary could have brought as it spread the story, its input, is the advancements that uh, have come in science and technology that have allowed us to learn beginning in Europe in the 1600s how to farm better, how to how to work, uh, uh, you know, how to make clear roads so we can communicate better, how to help build their lives, help to take care of, of disease that they, you know, haven't processed through uh, science for. Uh, and along with that is, I mean, what brings us there is our personal relationship with God to share. We're no uh, more righteous than they are. But our thinking has allowed us to develop. I, I hope we will nuance your, your comments as we go along. Yeah. Because I, I, see, I see real difficulties in some of the things you, you've said. Um, it, it, it can smack of, of the, the uh, idea of a superiority race yeah, and no, so forth, no, you see. That's not in my thinking at all. And that the Western world is a, no. the Western, no, you know, culture is superior. So that's not at all in my head. That's yeah, well, but, and that's where we're headed with this, rather than the cargo model of uh, what I have is I'm better. cargoing. Yeah, so. that's. I would hope that the model here, because my story combines with community story, combines with God's story, no story becomes the only story. I mean, in the end result, God's story is the, uh, the only story. That's true. But as we're speaking of mission, our shared story results in, I also have a new story. You see, It does impact me. My interaction in the Muslim world has impacted my own story. You see, uh, it results in the community's new story. It seems to me that uh, community story and our story are very have aspects of God's story in them. As they come together, there is clarification of God's story, and the community's new story and my new story, you know, are there's a oneness to it. They're not separate. Uh, they're still, they need to be filled with the story of other communities. But as the story goes to all the communities, so that when Matthew quotes, the gospel goes to all the world, that's when the truth will be known. Not that the truth is taken to all the world, but it's received. Let me just say an, illust- an illustration. I was I, I've I've worked in uh, I made several visits in recent uh, over the last year to Bangladesh to interact with a ministry that um, I was involved in starting back in 1990 in the Muslim world. And we have about 15,000, 16,000 believers in Jesus who are remaining in the Muslim context within Bangladesh at this time. And I'm interacting with them in recent months regarding income generation activities, small small credit and uh, uh, microcredit, uh, establishing cooperatives and so on. 
I got a phone call last week from a, a colleague of mine who has been there a couple weeks ago, and he was telling me how these how these folk have have done so well in developing their their understanding of, of a cooperative and how to manage a cooperative. And these are people that are also in the spiritual side of the ministry, but we're also trying to introduce internal support so that they aren't dependent on external uh, financial support. Um, and he was just relating to me how one of them kept, kept was was giving presentations, and he was observing, and uh, to to a group of the cooperative leaders, and how this person was was saying how we need to build trust in the local villages. Well, that's a message I've been sitting down with them and talking with them about for months. And to hear it reflected back, now it is their message. I brought a story. I'm very much aware, and they know I'm aware of God's story in their, in their past and in their current uh, history as well. But I bring a certain story to them, uh, a certain contribution and to hear them now reflecting it back, it is now theirs. They have taken ownership of it and said, okay, this is ours, you see. And, and, and I'm affected by that. They are affected by that. And we both have a new story. So, and that's just current uh, going on right now. A couple pictures just to illustrate. <clears throat> Muslims, Christians... Adventists sitting around together studying God's Word. I, I should have one with a Quran there as well, but I didn't have one readily accessible. But this one is an interesting picture. Um, can you tell who are the Adventists and who are the Muslims? You can tell this one guy over here. Probably He's probably Adventist. But the others? Uh, this one, is he Adventist? No, he's Muslim. Ad Muslim, Muslim, Adventist. Um, it's off the screen. There's one of our Adventist ladies. She's dressed like a Muslim. This is in South Philippines. Notice the title. These are children who have gone through a vacation Bible school, but not a real, not strictly a vacation Bible school. Do you see the title? What is it? Huh? VQBS. Have you heard of a VQBS? A vacation Quran Bible school. Huh? I was there for the graduation. I was the honored guest. I put all these wreaths around these beautiful children. Uh, these, you know, medallions or whatever. So I graduated them from the vac vacation Quran Bible school. The Muslims came to our Adventist folk and said, we know about Vacation Bible School. Can you come hold one of these in our madrasa? This is, this is a little madrasa building. What happens in madrasas? Huh? Well, that's where they teach terrorism, isn't it? We're holding a Vacation Bible School in a Muslim madrasa in South Philippines. But they said we have one request. Will you allow our our, our uh, teacher here in the madrasa to also teach, you can teach Bible texts, will you allow us to also teach Quranic texts? And so these little kids stand up reciting Quran texts and Bible texts and singing, I have decided to follow no. Allah. <laughs> Let me see. A beautiful example, I think, of what we're sh talking about, shared story. This is in an area of South Philippines where they take, for Muslim rebel groups, take hostages. See, I got in and out. But uh, a beautiful example, I think, of, of this idea of shared story. So let's, let's uh, move on. Our first task. So there's some principles out of this that I want to emphasize. Our first task in approaching another people, another culture, another religion, is to take off our shoes. For the place we are approaching is holy. Else we may find ourselves treading on men's dreams. More serious, we may forget that God was here before our arrival. We have then to ask, what is the authentic religious content in the experience? This is significant. 
We, we haven't done this before. The cargo model doesn't do this. Even the, even the uh, communication model doesn't really do this. We have then to ask, what is the authentic religious content in the experience of the Muslim, the Hindu, the Buddhist, or whoever he may be? We may, if we have asked humbly and respectfully, still reach the conclusion that our brothers have started from a false premise and reached a faulty conclusion. But we must not arrive at our judgment from outside their religious situation. Most of my critics within the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and I have a few, uh, are people who have no direct experience spiritually relating to Muslims. And they're simply making theological shots at what we are doing. We must not arrive at our judgment from outside their religious situation. We have to try to sit where they sit, to enter sympathetically into pains and griefs and joys of their history and see how those pains and griefs and joys have determined the premises of their argument. We have any word to be present with them. This was written by John Taylor in the book Primal Vision, The Primal Vision in 1963. Desire of Ages. What does Ellen White have to say? Does she have anything to say about this? Interesting quotation, what I've, I've pondered a lot in my work with the Muslim world. Outside the Jewish nation, there were men who foretold the appearance of a divine instructor. These men were seeking for truth, and to them, the spirit, capital S, of inspiration was imparted. Were they inspired? Hmm? If you found the writings of one of these men, would you call it an inspired book? Don't have to answer that, but think about it. Because one of the biggest questions that is thrown at us who work in the Muslim world is, what do you think of Muhammad and what do you think of the Quran? And you, you get into this black and white thinking that it's, he's either a true prophet or a false prophet. Well, what about it? Would you call these peop- people true prophets or false prophets? Do you think they had complete truth? Probably not. Did they have some truth? Apparently. The spirit of inspiration was imparted. So how we relate to these people is, is, is significant. It's part of that understanding. Does God have a story in their, in their history and in their past? And next week we're going to go into the background to Islam. Is there God's story in the history of Islam? One after another, like stars in the darkened heavens. It wasn't just one or two. One after another, like stars in the heavens, such teachers had arisen. Their words of prophecy had kindled hope in the hearts of thousands of the Gentile world. So there's a whole revelation going that has gone on down through history out there other than the biblical revelation through the Hebrew line that we don't even know about by and large unless we start asking questions. Also in Desire of Ages, the light of God is ever shining amid the darkness of heathenism. As these magi, he's referring to the wise men, studied the starry heavens and sought to fathom the mystery hidden in their bright paths, they beheld the glory of the Creator. That reminds us of Romans 1 and 2. Seeking clearer knowledge, they turned to the Hebrew Scriptures. In their own land were treasured prophetic writings. Put that with the previous uh, quotation. There were treasured prophetic writings in their own land. Inspired writings? Well, that predicted the coming of a divine teacher. Balaam belonged to the magicians, though at one time a prophet of God by the Holy Spirit, so she refers to Balaam's teaching. But, last sentence, in the Old Testament, the Savior's advent was more clearly revealed. I think we have, to me, in these two quotations, we have an interesting sequence. Where did they start? Local prophetic writings. Hmm? That's where they began. First of all, I guess they studied the heavens and, and in nature and so forth. 
but also local prophetic writings. But they were led to the Hebrew scriptures where they got a clearer understanding of the coming Messiah. Can I use that as a potential sequence when I'm reaching other faith traditions? Can I use sacred writings of Islam? That's local prophetic writing. May not have complete truth, but may have some. Can I use that? Can I begin there? Is that the story that as I come in with my story, is that where I can interject and move them to a clearer understanding of God's message of the cosmic conflict? We have the verses in, in John and Romans. The word is speaking of the word, the light that comes into the world and shines on all mankind. And uh, creation testifying to God. This is my statement. I'll stand on it. I'll defend it. It is far more effective to develop faith, a spiritual life, in the local context rather than import the context of faith and invite them to join it. The latter has been our traditional way of working. We go into an area, we hold a series of meetings, we we do preliminary work, preparatory work, whether that's uh, health work, whether that's uh, literature evangelism, whatever we do, we soften the area with with, uh, those kinds of troops first. And then we go in and we hold a series of meetings, we build a church, and uh, we, 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 we may even prefab the church somewhere else and bring it in. Um, I'm touching nerves on that one, I suppose. Uh, Maranatha, any Maranatha people here? Um, again, we're talking uh, an understanding. But uh, we, we, we sort of bring it in and, and, and we plant it there as an import and say, okay, now this is the house of faith. This is the way we do church. Let me teach you the songs to sing even. And this is the liturgy. And this is, yeah, I, we've become more flexible on liturgy, I know. But still, I can count, I can take you to example after example after example around the world where we haven't been very flexible on literature, on liturgy. It is far more effective rather than importing how we do church, to let faith develop in that local context. Understand their story. Understand God's story in their history and in their present. Yes, I do have a God story with me that I bring, but I must unite it with their story and God's story in their, in their lives. And together we come out with a new story. Now, in the last couple minutes, I, well, I'm going to have to close. Uh, let's look at, uh, let's, let's think for just a moment in the last minute or two here. Our traditional way of doing mission, we have said there are certain countries that are closed countries, other countries that are we can, we can work in. What have we meant by that? And I asked the question, and I've asked this at the general conference level in some of our meetings there. Do you think God has a list of closed countries? I don't think so. You see, we, we say God, there, is a, there are closed countries because we're still back in this cargo and communication model. Um, Judy and I were in, in Aleppo, Syria a couple years ago for Christmas time. Our, one of our daughters and her husband were there for three months. And uh, so over Christmas time, it was cold. We, they had rented an old house in the old Arabic quarter right near the citadel. You could go up on their roof, and there was a citadel sitting right there. After two weeks there, we had, we had meals in locals' homes uh, that they had made. They had only been there three months and had made friends through various means. And I just got to thinking, you know, the church is not recognized in Syria. We have no official work in Syria. 
And I, I just thought to myself at the end of our, our stay there, <laughs> here we had some beautiful interaction with, with some of the, the, the folk there. We don't have to be recognized as an organized church in Syria to have a mission in Syria. We came back and we had a, I won't mention names, but we were guests in a, the home of some dear friends of ours here who are from the Middle East. And his first question was, uh, or his first statement was, uh, I just wish our church could get recognized in Syria. And my immediate reaction was, after that experience, I looked at him and I said, Why? Why do you want the church recognized in Syria? We could do mission in Syria. We don't need recognition of a church in order to do mission in Syria. All we need is someone to go and live the, the Jesus life in the middle of the people and, 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 and share and, and, and be one among them, you see. So does God have a list of clo- Syria is a closed country on the church's list right now because we have no legal status in the country. Does God class Syria as a closed country? I don't think so. We have to open our our thinking to to how God wants to conduct his mission in, in these end times. And it evolves what we think our role is, what our purpose is as God's people, uh, what we think of them. We're going to talk about that next week. So thank you for coming. Uh, we'll refer to some of the rest of this handout in the beginning next week. Just summarize it quickly, and then we'll move uh, into the other discussions scheduled for next week. Could I just make an editorial comment here? Uh, one of my mentors, more so Gerald's mentor, was uh, Robert Darnell, who spent many years in the Middle East and who, in my view, was an outstanding Adventist missiologist who tried to work out a model for doing missions from the Bible. And the person who has been uh, sort of executed the testament of Robert Darnell is, is Gerald Whitehouse. So it's a real privilege for us to 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 have that this opportunity to to listen to to the thinking behind this, the biblical perspectives that lie behind this 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 approach, and the enormous experiences. Uh, and I hope Gerald will will share generously from his experiences uh, in in missions because. He has been a frontline missionary, like he and Julia have been frontline missionaries, like very few people in the Adventist community today. If you want to be on a mailing list or get an email update, uh, please, those of you who might not be on our list already, you just come up here and, 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 and uh, we'll have a, a piece of paper and we'll send you a reminder on what our topics are as we, as we continue on. Thank you very much, Jeff. Yeah.